Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Brett Easton Ellis on his first novel in 13 years. The Shards. So it's the 800th episode of Little Atoms, and I'm delighted to welcome back Brett Easton Ellis to the show for this occasion. Brett Easton Ellis is the author of six novels, including Lesson Zero and American Psycho, a collection of essays and a collection of stories, which have been translated into 32 languages. He lives in Los Angeles and is the host of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, which you can find on Patreon. Brett, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. And I didn't mention that we're going to be talking about The Shards, which is your your latest novel and indeed your first novel in 13 years. Um, So how would you describe The Shards for us? Well, I don't know. I mean, if anyone ever asks me to describe any of my books, I'm always a bit tongue-tied. I suppose, in a way, they're reflections of where I was at the time I wrote them. Every single book is like that. Every single book I've written is a reflection of the pain and the confusion and the emotions that I was going through at that time. And for me, writing a novel, and I don't know why, but writing a novel, writing these things out, putting them on paper, has always um, helped me, had healed me in some ways. And that's true of American Psycho. That's true of White, my nonfiction collection. So it's certainly true of the Shards as well. I was obviously thinking about the past because the book is set in 1981. And I was feeling strangely nostalgic during the pandemic. This was the first month of the lockdown where the Shards really started to announce itself to me. Because this was a book I've been thinking about for 40 years. I first started thinking about the Shards in 1982 pretty much at the time that it's set. It's set in L.A. in 1981. And I could never really figure it out after all these years. I try and, you know, something would halfway come, but I would never get more than a few pages in. But for some reason, at 56, uh, 57, however old I was when this happened to me in April of 2020, I was obviously going through something. I was going through a period of nostalgia, thinking about the past, how a lot of those friends from 40 years ago weren't on social media. They had disappeared. I hadn't spoken to them in decades. The places that we hung out in in Los Angeles during our senior year of high school 
were gone. The movie theaters were gone. The malls were gone. The restaurants were gone. The nightclubs were gone. And I just had this surge, this surge of nostalgia and of feeling about that time. And I wrote down three pages and then four pages. And I thought, maybe this is going to happen now. And then the next day I wrote 14 pages and it just took off. And that book that I've been wanting to write, it didn't change that much at all from 1982 until now. It just took off. And so I spent uh, the next you know year and a half uh, writing this book that had been eluding me for so many years. All the rest of your novels pretty much are set in, you know, as people like to describe it now, the sort of Brett Easton Ellis cinematic universe. They're all loosely connected. Characters cross over from one to the other. And they're often set in either a fictionalised version of the high school that appears in this book, The Shards, or a fictionalised version of the college that the character Brett in this book goes to eventually. So looking back to you thinking about writing this book, you know, right back in 1981, what obviously comes out is Less Than Zero, which is a, you know, much more fictionalised version of the same sort of milieu that you're working in. So was that a decision? Was the decision not to write the shards at that time? I was going to say almost a loss of nerve, but you decided to fictionalise it much more than because this book is, and we'll talk about this probably contentious designation as well, perhaps a bit later on, but this book can be described as autofiction. Uh, I think the problem back then in 1981 or 1982, when I set aside Less Than Zero, which I'd already been working on for a couple of years, it was the Less Than Zero Project, I called it, and it had many iterations. Uh, it, was, uh, it was in some ways quite different from what was eventually published, and I was working on that for a couple of years before the shards suddenly happened, you know, suddenly was the book that I wanted to write instead. The problem wasn't anything other than I didn't have the chops to do it. I just didn't have the range and I didn't have, you know, I felt the talent or enough um, experience, enough experience to write that book. And the first attempt just seemed flat. It was told in like present tense, first person, like Less Than Zero was, and it just wasn't working. So I had the whole plot laid out. I had the whole idea laid out. Robert Mallory was already there. And the movements of the book are the same as they are today. It was just a matter of talent. And Less Than Zero seemed like a much easier book to do. And that was still, to a degree, fairly autobiographical. I mean, yeah, some outlandish stuff happens in it. But overall, I took a lot of Less Than Zero from my life and then fictionalized it. I guess this word autofiction has been you know, bandied about a lot. And people have done it. I've done it before. I guess I did it to a degree in Lunar Park, the novel I published in 2005, which was a kind of Stephen King homage set in a haunted house with a writer named Brett Easton Ellis. But I'm not even really making a conscious decision about anything. I mean, it's desire. It's emotion. I mean, that's what guides me towards writing. It's not overthinking stuff or intellectualizing anything or making conscious decisions. It's a feeling. And so, you know, there is the cool technician that comes in near the latter part of, you know, the writing of a book and kind of, you know, uh, makes sure everything's working properly on, on some level. 
But really, most novels come out of a, at a very emotional place and a place of feeling rather than intellect, at least for me. So autofiction. So it just felt right. I mean, if I was going to write this novel, why bother calling the guy Jason? Why bother calling him Sam? I mean, this was basically me I was writing about. And all the feelings and everything that I was going through during this somewhat tumultuous year, a year that really was for me the divider between adolescence, between childhood and adolescence, and adulthood. Between, as I write in the book, a kind of innocence and then a kind of corruption. Why the 13-year gap between this and the last novel? Well, you know, it wasn't any other reason that no novel um, announced itself to me. And I keep saying that, announced itself to me, announced itself to me. But that's really what happens. A novel just appears and it, you start feeling it and it's expanding in your mind. That wasn't happening after uh, Imperial Bedrooms. And so what I was doing during those years was I was chasing the TV and movie business. And I really did think that I wanted to create a TV series. I wanted to direct a film. I was writing pilots for studios and for production companies, and nothing was getting made. Or one or two things were getting made, and it was just a very dissatisfying experience. I'm not going to say that I wasn't well paid for those lost 10 years, but it really was in the end demoralizing. It really was. It was, and a lot of people say this, and they keep going at it because they've got three kids, they've got a mortgage, they need the money, and they do it. I'm a single man. I, I live pretty simply. I finally just did not need to go through all that shit to, uh, you know, make a, a bit of cash and, you know, just whatever you have to do in order to make that cash. I just got sick of it. And so I uh, that ended for me in about 2019, uh, 2020, just about the time of the shards. And I think maybe, just maybe, when I quit the business, or in some respects, the business quit me as well. I wonder if that opened the door for the shards. And I kind of mentioned that in the introduction of this book, that maybe not being so lost and distracted in the machinations of Hollywood that I was able to breathe a little bit and that this book, this elusive book, finally was allowed to move in with me and spend some time. But it wasn't a conscious thing. I didn't even know. Whenever someone, I, I think the first time I saw that, uh, my American publisher, Knopf, was showing me some ads. And they said, his first novel in 12 years or 13 years. And I thought, really? Jesus, it has been that long. But there wasn't a novel in between. You know, there just simply wasn't. And you've also taken the decision, you have a, a mentioned the podcast, and you made the decision to, to release audio versions of this novel over a period of time before the novel has come out. Tell me about why you decided to do that. Well, it was the pandemic. There were no guests. We do it in studio. So in order for us to really make the podcast work, you got to be in, in the studio with us. And we don't do phone and we don't do Zoom. And so, you know, there's only, I was doing these podcasts about being in LA during those first weeks of shutdown, of lockdown. Those were kind of very, you know, um, you know, they were kind of literary and funny and long and scary. And so that went on for a few weeks. And then the shards happened. And then I was also doing movie reviews, just anything to keep the podcast going, because I love doing the podcast. And I didn't want to just not do it because we couldn't have guests available. 
So it was fun. I was doing long movie reviews. and But what happened was I was about 200 pages into this book. And it was September now, September of 2020. I had started the book in April of 2020. And I told my producer, I said, you know what? I think maybe we can serialize this. And he said, oh, really? Do you think people will listen to this? Or And I said, let's just give it a shot. So I, and by that time, we did have guests beginning to return. And so we, I think the first time we did this, I think we had uh, the writer, Walter Kern. But the first part of the podcast was the first chapter. And read it, we posted it, and we got a really, really surprisingly good response to it. And so then we did it again. We did the second chapter and we kept going and we did this for about a year. We, I think there are 24 episodes, 24 chapters that make up the book, the, uh, our unedited, our unedited version, which is still up on Patreon. If anyone wants to hear the unedited shards read by me with gorgeous sound effects that are missing from the, the random house, one which is pretty stripped down, bare bones, and with me interjecting all the time. It's still available. I'm not going to ever take it down. So I think it's like 33 hours or something. I think the uh, the the Random House or whatever the UK version is, as well as about 24, I don't know, 24 hours. It's still long. Um, so that's why we did it. That's why we did it. So tell us something about Brett, who is our narrator of this novel, the character in The Shards. Who is he? He's me. He's basically me. And there's also this idea of me at 17 and 18. I was a fabulist. I made up things. I was a writer. In many ways, The Shards is my origin story in a lot of ways. I mean, it's sort of about how do you control this superpower you find out that you have, that you love to write and you love to imagine things, and you're working on a novel. And at 17, you're looking at the world with all of this desire and lust and passion, and you can barely contain yourself. And your overactive imagination, uh, the, the dramatic writer that you tend to uh, inhabit at times, starts seeing the world in a, in a certain way, just as I had. And this is reflected in the plot of the novel, The Shards. And the bread and the shards is very much like the bread I was. I really made up stuff. I, I thought things were happening among friends or and I would create gossip or and, and I was also lying to a couple of people because I was involved with one of the most popular girls in our senior class and I was gay, but I was not out yet. I had, was having a secret thing with another male classmate. I was kind of secretive and also someone prone to drama. And I remember that, you know, I kind of, assumed something about someone and then I created a bit of gossip about it. And it was just my personality. Uh, I mean, I wasn't like completely flamboyantly crazy. It was really kind of subtly done <laughs> in a very writerly way. And it got me into trouble. And I lost friends. Someone got mad at me about something, didn't speak to me for the rest of my life, it's turned out. And I was quite close to. And I just, you know, it was the moment where I realized you have got to step back because you are reading everything wrong. These things are not happening. Those two aren't involved. That guy doesn't love you. That teacher isn't, you know, whatever, screwing one of the students. It was just this thing I was doing. And it was just 
you know, whatever. So the shards was really, the bread and the shards is going through a similar thing on a much more dramatic level. And I just had to pull back. And it was, again, this moment of moving from kind of childish make-believe and wishing the world was one way and that your emotions were gratified because you made up something that gratified those emotions into the starker, colder reality of adulthood. And so those breaths are the same. And really, I would have to say, there's not a lot in this book that isn't really, in this work of fiction, in this novel, that really isn't about me. It was a chance for me to kind of exorcise those feelings that had been kind of tamped down for 40 years, writing about those friends I felt I betrayed. And in a way, offering not an apology, but a sincere explanation as to who I was and why I did the things I did. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Brett Easton Ellis, and we're talking about his latest novel, The Shards. And Brett, you've just mentioned in the first half that the character Brett is basically lightly fictionalized version of yourself. Tell us about some of the other characters in the book, because there are other main characters, um, Debbie, Susan, Tom, Robert, who you've already mentioned earlier on in the interview. These are obviously fictional people although no doubt parts of them are pulled from real people but tell us something about who 
some of these characters are? Well, look, when I was going to sit down and finally write this story, as I said earlier, it was not going to change that much from the novel I wanted to write in 1981-1982. It was about the same people, because that's what happened to me. These were the people I hurt or messed up or got wrong or betrayed or whatever. So that cast was never going to change. And, you know, look, I did get a text the other day from someone I had not spoken to in decades. In fact, it wasn't a text. They had found me on Facebook and it was a Facebook thing. And it simply said, of all the names that you could have given me, Debbie is my least favorite. And I knew exactly who it was. And Debbie Schaefer is the girlfriend of Brett Easton Ellis in The Shards. And she's the daughter of a powerful movie producer here in Hollywood. And there are elements that I've taken from all of my friends during that period and have interweaved them into these characters. So certainly there was someone very much like the star athlete Tom, uh, Tom Wright in the book, who is a gorgeous Adonis football player that I definitely noticed and was friendly with throughout my uh, time at Buckley. And there was also... You know, um, Susan Reynolds, who was the class beauty, uh, who really was the person who radiated this kind of cool that was powerful. I noticed it. I noticed it for a long time. This kind of numbness as a feeling aesthetic. And I know that sounds contradictory, but it was in the air then and she embodied it. And so she really was an influence on my uh, my writing. But I don't, that's not all this person was. And she might not have even noticed that. I noticed that. And then there are, of course, there are a couple of boys I was involved with. And, you know, maybe half real, maybe a lot fictionalized, but still grounded in an emotional reality that I went through. And so the cast of characters that I encountered at 17 were always the cast of characters I wanted to write about. But just, of course, you know, this is a work of fiction, and, I, and it is, uh, I, I can't imagine anyone reading this book recognizing themselves and not being somewhat flattered by the nostalgic haze I describe them under. I mean, I think everyone looks pretty good, except for me. <laughs> except for me. Tell us something more about Buckley, the school then, because, I mean, it's a real school and one can look up its Wikipedia page and it has a long list of, you know, in- incredibly famous and notable alumni. What was it like at the time that you were there? Well, you know, I had dinner recently with a friend of mine, a classmate from 1981, 1982, just last week. His daughter goes there now. And I haven't been to the campus in a long time. I've seen pictures of it, of course, because while I was riding the shards, I wanted to see what changes had happened. And he said, it looks completely different. It looks nothing like the place we went to in the 70s and the early 80s. It was a beautiful campus, very charming, just a gorgeous, gorgeous place to go to school. It was, looking back, a place that I should have felt very lucky to have attended, very privileged to have attended this place, which really, really cared for its students. You know, it was a bit controlling. And I know there were famous people who 
attended Buckley and then couldn't stand it anymore and dropped out. I know uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, the filmmaker, was there at Buckley and couldn't deal with it. Couldn't deal with the uniforms, couldn't deal with the hair regulations. But he was a bit, uh, he was a bit uh, later than I was. He's a bit younger than me. We just thought we had an amazing amount of freedom and that we were treated like adults and we wanted to be treated like adults. That's what Buckley encouraged. That was the point of Buckley. And we were all along for that ride. None of us wanted to stay children. None of us wanted to, you know, whatever. We wanted to get out into the world. And L.A. allowed you to once you got a car. But my problem, of course, was that I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a writer. I didn't feel I needed high school. And so I was kind of locked in this trap at Buckley. And of course, no one was out as gay, not even the couple of boys that I, of course, knew intimately. No one was out as gay. So, you know, you had to play a game. You had to be a bit of an actor. And all of this was conspiring to make me somewhat antsy and a bit depressed. And I really couldn't wait to get out of Buckley, even though now, looking back, I realized that, well, if things had been different, I should have taken full advantage of it and paid closer attention. And I don't know, appreciated it a lot more than I did then. We were very lucky. You mentioned the idea that the school wanted to treat you like adults and you were all your classmates all wanted to be adults and behave like adults. And, and one of the things that comes across in this book, and also obviously thinking, you know, right back to, to less than zero, it's, it's, it's a similar thing, is this is a generation of teenagers who are most often without parental supervision, Brett's parents in this book are away. He's he's on his own in the house for three months. His parents are away on a trip. And I wonder, thinking now, you just mentioned that you, ha- you had dinner with a friend who's, whose daughter goes there now. And, and I do wonder, on the one hand, whether or not the teenagers that are there at that school now would have anywhere near the same freedom as, as you did back in the 1980s. But at the same time, the converse of that is that one of the other sort of aspects of, of this novel, and again, I guess, Lesson Zero, is that you're living like completely separate. Obviously, these are extremely privileged children, but living completely detached from politics and the outside world as well. And I also can't imagine that today's teens would be as detached from what was going on in the wider world as you were at the time. They should be. They'd be a lot happier. Look, everyone pays a price somehow. Our generation, I'm sure, paid a price, though I think paid far less of a price in terms of a kind of uh, parental neglect, if you want to call it. I don't know what was going on with Gen X, but we were left to our own devices. I don't know what it was about our boomer parents in terms of allowing us this freedom. But I do think that it... Sure. There's a bit of a bite to that, I suppose. Uh, There's a bit of a price to pay. But I think there was many more advantages in terms of growing up, in terms of experimenting, in terms of exploring freedom with all of its costs. You know, it doesn't come without a cost. But, you know, I think that you grow up and you learn what the world is really like and that you are not a victim of anything, and that, you know, the list goes on and on. So I would say 
And look, the friend I was having dinner with the other night was going, Jesus Christ, you know, I'm raising two kids and my daughter's in her 20s. We had it so much better. I can't even begin to tell you, Brett, we had it so much better comparatively to what these children are dealing with, what my daughter dealt with. I mean, we had, it was just so free, you know, there wasn't these eggshells to walk on and this horrible exhibitionistic culture on the internet and all this stuff. Yes, we're old men and we were very proud to be old men and grateful we grew up when we did. And I don't even have children. He's just talking about his own and how miserable they are compared to how we were. So I don't know. Every generation, I suppose, pays a price. I just think we paid less of a price in terms of just not having that kind of interaction with our parents or having that kind of, you know, hovering over our kids in a way because I guess, you know, I was talking to a parent about this, about this hovering aspect that my generation kind of suddenly felt they had to focus on. A lot of them said it's because even if the world isn't as dangerous as it once was, at least the Internet makes it sound so much more dangerous. So, you know, I have a friend who got, I got a a few friends who got locked into this hawk-like gaze on their kids. And then they realize at a certain point they have to kind of let go because it's just stunting their growth in a way. That's a kind of rambling answer to a very simple question, but that's where I'm at. Can I get you to to read a bit to finish this off with? Sure. Uh, I'm going to actually just read the opening of the book. Many years ago, I realized that a book, a novel, is a dream that asks itself to be written in the same way we fall in love with someone. The dream becomes impossible to resist. There's nothing you can do about it. You finally give in and succumb, even if your instincts tell you to run the other way, because this could be, in the end, a dangerous game. Someone will get hurt. For a few of us, the first ideas, images, the initial stirrings can prompt the writer to automatically immerse themselves in the novel's world, its romance and fantasy, its secrets. For others, it can take longer to feel this connection more clearly, ages to realize how much you needed to write the novel or love that person to relive that dream, even decades later. The last time I thought about this book, this particular dream, and telling this version of the story, the one you're reading now, the one you just began, was almost 20 years ago, when I thought I could handle revealing what happened to me and a few of my friends at the beginning of our senior year at Buckley in 1981. We were teenagers, superficially sophisticated children who really knew nothing about how the world actually worked. We had the experience, I suppose, but we didn't have the meaning, at least not until something happened that moved us into a state of exalted understanding. When I first sat down to write this novel, a year after the events had taken place, It turned out that I couldn't deal with revisiting this period or any of those people I knew and the terrible things that befell us, including, most crucially, what had happened to me. In fact, without even writing a word, I shut the idea of the project down almost as soon as I began it. I was 19. Even without picking up a pen or sitting at my typewriter, only gently remembering what happened proved too unnerving in that moment And I was at a place in my life that didn't need the added stress. And I forced myself to forget about that period, at least for a while. And it wasn't hard to erase the past in that moment. 
But the urge to write the book returned when I left New York after living there for over 20 years. The East Coast was where I escaped almost immediately upon graduation, fleeing the trauma of that last year at high school, and found myself living back in Los Angeles, where those events from 1981 had taken place, and where I felt stronger, more resolved about the past, and that I was capable of stealing myself from the pain of it all and entering the dream. But this turned out not to be the case then either. And after typing up a few pages of notes about the events that happened in the autumn of 1981, when I thought I had numbed myself with half a bottle of Ocho in order to keep proceeding, letting the tequila stabilize my trembling hands, I experienced an anxiety attack so severe that it sent me to the emergency room at Cedar sinai in the middle of that night. If we want to connect the act of writing with the metaphor of romance, then I had wanted to love this novel, and it seemed to be finally offering itself to me, and I was so tempted. But when it came time to consummate the relationship, I found myself unable to fall into the dream. So I've been talking to Brett Easton Ellis. We've been talking about his new novel, The Shards, which is out in the UK from Swift Books. Brett, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.